0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm
2: Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Another warm one in the hammer today. Get outside and enjoy life before the bugs and allergies arrive. <laughs> Here, Scott
0: Thompson.
3: There you go, pre bug. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Another unbelievable day in the hammer. Uh, we'll take it. Thank you very much. Uh, I, although as the weekend approaches and uh, towards the latter half, uh, it starts to get a little cooler. So, uh, be forewarned. Enjoy and, uh, have your, have another barbecue tonight. What the heck? Uh, Will Weber is on the board playing the Chrissy Hine and the Pretenders. Middle of the road. Number 114 on billboard uh, sorry not billboards rolling stones top 200 singers of all time and as you know um the big stink was at the beginning of this way back in january yeah we know how to ride a dead horse here uh in january it was well why isn't celine Dion on this we don't we don't get it but as we go through this list and, uh, and i'm sure will can uh attest to this too as we go through this list and we hear people like Chrissy Hine, um, people like... Uh, who's some of the other ones that are here? That I, uh, Donna Summer, um, um, Neil Young. Uh, you know, you think maybe um, we're looking at this a little differently. <laughs> you know, maybe not the, the genre of a pure singer as, say, Celine Dion is. I don't know. And where go. is she on the list?
1: Hang um, on. I know it's...
2: Not
3: on it. Oh, All right, come on, Americans. <laughs> there you go. That's you know, that's a good point. Perhaps it's well, although Neil Young's on it. Like what the heck? All right, enough of that. Uh, I think I've just crumpled up my show sheet now. Uh, so the big TV today, the the hour and a half or two hours of your life you'll never get back, other than this show, of course uh is the uh watching of um, Katie Telford who is the chief of staff for the prime minister her testify and uh the funny thing is is it, depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on uh, the pundits will say, there's nothing she's going to say. There's nothing she's going to say. There's nothing more we're going to find out about this. There's nothing more that we're going to, you know. Uh, and, and, and then on the other, uh, side, they'll, they'll say, well, what she didn't say is, is, is valuable. So at the end of the day, I think this comes out even. I don't think anybody really, I don't think they changed anybody's opinion. But let's remember that the opinion was before all of this that the majority of Canadians, both liberal and conservative, still want a public inquiry so uh, no the needle wasn't really moved but it needed to move in the Liberals favor in order to get them out of this mess and watching Katie Telford uh, basically dodge questions the way that we watch the Prime Minister do it all the time I don't think that's enough to keep uh, to keep Canadians uh, to happy and, and again um, you know the, the common quote I can't get into what was briefed on the question was never what they were briefed on it's when the Prime Minister new of all of this and the fascinating takeaway from it all and it's very unfortunate the conservatives can't conduct themselves in a respectful way through one of these events and not end up looking like jerks Uh, and you wonder why they don't win because they just keep shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, but I digress and I'll talk about that a little later. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Katie Telford said nothing is ever kept from the prime minister. And he has said it was quoted today in, uh, you know, in, in the media and, and as well, the prime minister has said in the past that he's aware he has many briefings all the time. And she said nothing is ever kept from him. So I, I guess out of this, and the conservatives asked this, asked this in the very end, that we're just to assume that he knew because you you say you tell him everything and it looks like the Prime Minister's office knew so let's just assume he knew I don't know so uh, this certainly doesn't solve any issues so I guess on the public inquiry we're gonna go we're gonna have to wait and see first want to play you a clip uh, this is from her opening opening statements this is Katie Telford chief of staff for the Prime Minister about uh, actions being taken.
4: What I can say here is this, when we receive intelligence briefings of any kind, we don't leave any stones unturned. We usually start by asking a lot of questions. Questions like how credible is the intelligence? Who else has been briefed? Who else needs to be briefed? What decisions are in front of decision makers? What actions have already been taken? What actions can be taken? And what authorities are needed to take them? Very often, they are not within the Prime Minister's or Cabinet's authorities. By that I mean those are decisions for law enforcement or intelligence officials. And as you've heard from them about the tools they have available, like CSIS's threat reductions. All that being said, if there are actions to be taken to protect national security, we do not hesitate.
3: So uh, Katie Telford was then asked during the testimony if anything is ever kept from the Prime Minister. This is a short answer. Turn it up, Well, Listen very carefully.
4: No, there's not... There, if I'm understanding you correctly, there is nothing that is ever kept from the Prime Minister. Certainly not by me.
3: <laughs> Let's play that one more time.
4: No, there's not... There, if I'm understanding you correctly, there is nothing that is ever kept from the Prime Minister. Certainly not by
3: me. So... So, if we're told that the Prime Minister's office received this information, which would have been, of course, the Chief of Staff, um, clearly, whether you want to hide behind security issues or not, how do you square that circle? There is nothing that is ever kept from him, but we can't tell you when he found out about it or what have you. You follow the rest of the reports and and the information from Csis and what's been reported from Global and the Globe and Mail. Um, you know he's been briefed many, 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 many times over the course of his tenure. So they can't tell you exactly what, where or what, you know, when they talked about these things. But he's been briefed many times. And as Katie Telford said, nothing is ever kept from the prime minister.
4: There is nothing that is ever kept from the prime minister.
3: Enough said. Um, We don't have to reveal anybody's secret security to get that kind of answer. Can't we connect the dots or is that impossible? Is that wrong? Is that, is that the wrong approach? We'll discuss that over the course of the show. We talked yesterday with Councillor Brad Clark about this very issue, and I remember asking the Councillor uh, what the purpose of this was, what the hopes were here by declaring a state of emergency in Hamilton over homelessness, opioid addiction, and mental health issues. That's three. Uh, and, and he said to draw attention. And earlier on uh, today on the news, I see, in fact, this is getting national attention now Andrea Horvath is with us, Mayor of the City of Hamilton and here now. Andrea, thanks for the time. Hope you're well
5: uh, Well, I am and thank you, Scott, for, uh, for inviting me on so that we can have this conversation
3: So, Andrea, uh, again, I was, as I mentioned, I was talking to Councillor Brad Clark about this and, you know, what do you hope to gain, but uh, I guess the first step getting awareness in it on a national newscast is a success What are your thoughts that this has already gained that kind of attention?
5: Uh, well, it, it, first of all, I, I think I, I everybody owes uh, Councillor Clark a debt of gratitude in terms of the strategy because he has been uh, saying for the last little while that we we really need to to find a way uh, to raise this issue to a higher level, just to 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 ring the alarm bells, you know, to to sign to to sound the alarm, and uh, and that's why Council backed his motion uh, because this is a problem that. Has been ongoing for a long time, as you know, but things have taken—it's uh, it, gotten to another level. Let's just say it say it that way. We had service providers that work in social services in you know, places like the Good Shepherd and the YMCA and uh, and the food bank, uh, uh, the the, uh, the food bank uh, organization with Joanne Santucci, uh, Food Share. All of them are telling us that they have never seen things as dire as they are now we see 1500 folks uh, that are regularly homeless on our streets we see 80 families a month being turned away from the shelter system because there's no room Uh, we see people in mental health crisis in all parts of our city overdoses uh deaths by overdose happening in all parts of our city and with covid really things did get a lot worse Uh, Mm -hmm. we were able to get some extra support during covid uh, but um but, but it's, a new, it's a, new, a new normal, I think, and it shouldn't be normal. and We shouldn't just accept it as normal. But we as a city can't afford all of the mental health supports, all of the health care, uh, you know, addiction support. We can't afford to provide all of the housing and the supportive housing and the, the wraparound services. Those things don't belong on a property tax base. It, they belong on an income distribution tax base which is what the provincial and federal governments provide. Property taxes shouldn't be paying for this. Now, having said that, we increased our housing uh, uh, investments by 30% over last year in this past budget. But that's not sustainable. Uh, We we have to have the other orders of government uh, at the table and providing us with the help.
3: And, and as you mentioned, post-pandemic, this has just exploded virtually across the country. Uh, we know that Hamilton's not the first to declare uh, states of emergency for this. Uh, Niagara, the, the same sort of thing. Is there anything the cities can do together? Is there anything uh, cities can learn from each other? You know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, you, you, just, you, you watch the news. This is happening in major cities across the country. Much like we did with health care, is there any way we can zero in on this? Because this seems to be a problem. That's happening uh, across the country. And as you said, post pandemic, it's just exploded, it seems. Are there solutions out there and, and something to be learned there?
5: Well, I think that there are. And uh, I mean, I, I guess the, the one thing that's important to know is that there's an organization called the Ontario Big City Mayors, uh, and they're through the leadership mm-hmm. of two particular cities, which is London and uh kingston uh, they've come together with a a, a quite an extensive list of exactly that what are the actual actions that can be taking place to uh to to address this problem in a systemic way these problems not just one all of these problems uh and it's uh i think there's like 12 or 15 recommendations and in fact to be fair uh, the province did provide a little bit of extra homelessness type of funding in the last budget. We're grateful for that. It it doesn't scratch the surface, but you have to acknowledge that uh, that somebody was paying attention a little bit, anyways, to give a little bit of help. Uh, we Ontario city, uh, big city mayors uh, actually had invited uh, the minister of health to have this conversation because look, mental health and addiction that's that's a health care issue. You know, we we need we need the provincial health care dollars to help us. Uh, deal with that. And and to, to her credit, that meeting happened last week. Uh, Minister Jones met with these uh, leaders from the Ontario big city mayors. And, um, and so, the, I mean, the hopeful sign is that uh, there's a dialogue happening. We're not just yelling at a brick wall anymore. Uh, and that's a good thing. What this uh, initiative that we've undertaken does, I think just it amps up the volume a little bit. So Niagara region amps up the volume. We're amping up the volume. Uh, the Ontario big city mayors are, and I'm sure other cities are going to follow suit. Uh, we, we can't just sit back and, and wait and hope.
3: I've only got about 30 seconds left, Andrea, but it sounds like, with, like there's, two, there's a, short-term solu- a, sh- a short-term problem and a long-term problem here. Short-term is we've got to deal with what's on the doorstep right now, but then if this is the, if this is the new normal moving forward, how do, we, how do we deal with that?
5: Yeah, and it's something that we talk about a lot in, in public health circles and uh, in organizing uh, in terms of so, uh, social issues and social responses, and that is upstream investments. So if, if we if we want to end homelessness, you know we have to find systems or build systems uh, that prevent people from coming home, uh, becoming homeless in the first place. So that means things like affordable housing. That means helping people who are you know really close to being able to afford their housing actually uh, have that extra little bit of help so that they don't lose their housing. So the, the other thing is how do we keep people in sustained uh, residency and, and sustained tenancies. And so Hamilton's doing some great work on that and we're going to see uh, a, a, an investment uh, strategy coming forward, uh, as well as a, a kind of a, a way to tackle practically some of these problems. It's a, a housing investment road, roadmap, and it's coming uh, this month. And so, you know, we'll put, the, we'll put the plan together, but we need support in financing of that plan. And, and, and you're right, these kinds of solutions, they work in Hamilton, they'll work in London, they'll work in Kingston, they'll work in Toronto, and I dare say they'll work across the country, uh, but they need to be financed.
3: Andrea Horbath with us, Mayor of City of Hamilton, uh, now making news uh, nationally over declaring a state of emergency. Andrea, thanks so much for the time. Good luck.
5: Thank you. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. A new piece in the National Post. Randall Denley writes that by ditching density requirements, Ontario will get more housing built. And uh, I'll read just a form of it from you. Um, uh, the new rules will allow municipalities to allot new land for housing as they choose. Ontarians have long been told that the path to housing happiness is high density, ample public transit, and tight government control of every aspect of planning and development. If that were so, Ontario wouldn't require 650,000 new housing units just to meet the Canadian per, uh, per capita average. To talk more about all of this, Randall Denley is with us now, a National Post and Ottawa citizen. Randall, thanks for the time. hope you're well. I am. Explain how this is different today. Explain how uh, this could be a, a positive move forward.
6: So, for about uh, in 20 years, Scott, planners have had a a vision of the future that doesn't really have much to do with the reality of Ontario today or the reality of what the city's been doing to develop over that period of time but it is that you know world that you described there where everybody's supposed to live a certain way You've got to have tons of density why do we need the density well so everyone can ride transit why does everyone have to ride transit with well, cars like you can't drive a car none of that really squares up too well with reality of uh, suburban life, but you know, nevertheless, under the liberals, they said, "Well, you know, you need 80 people every hectare of development. has got to be 80 people; can't be less." So everything worked around that for the reasons I just described. But the focus of the Ford government is is really different. It's like we need housing, a lot of housing, and we're a little less worried about. Exactly what it's going to be like. We just need housing, which I think is very much in sync with what you know most people would think. So when you reduce the density requirement as they have to 50, and you say to municipalities, "Well, look, you know, if an area looks right for development, approve it for development." It's a lot different than the kind of official plan process that people in this world are used to, where. You know, government planners working in municipalities will study for years to determine what is exactly how many units of housing what we need and what types and where should they go exactly and what would be the perfect land to put that on. So then they send that to city councils and generally they say, okay, yeah, that, that's brilliant. We'll add those pieces of land but no others because God forbid you would have more land available just to develop than we might absolutely require. And yet, and you, and people turn around and say, well, well, how come this development land is so expensive? Well, when government says, we're going to create an artificial shortage or something, yeah. of course then it becomes expensive. I mean, the, the reality in a lot of parts of Ontario is that there's a lot of land, but we act like we're on some little island. Yeah, There's just so much to be had. We're PEI here. And the other potato thing... Fields or- And we plan too much, we're going to be into the ocean. It's Uh, just not a realistic approach, whereas this, I think, is a much more uh, reasonable way to proceed and more in sync with what people want and people looking for housing.
3: And it seems that this is less of the extremes because I think many thought that oh, all we have to do is just infill in the urban areas, and this will solve the problem. And clearly, that's not the case. We, you know, no, when, it, where it's it, available it's to where it's available to do that, absolutely. But we need to also do the opposite as well. Are we finally realizing that?
6: Yes, I think the government's got a good grip on this at last. They've been kind of moving in this direction for a couple of years, but now they're making it official. And like, I have nothing against infill. You know, it's part of the solution. Yeah. But you're never going to get big numbers quickly out of infill. And the government says, hey, we need, you know, one and a half million homes over 10 years. It's highly unlikely they're going to meet that target. And even if they did, they're still not going to keep up with demand. But, you know, good to have a target, I guess. But you're not going to get that kind of housing volume if you're looking for sort of Niche developers who might you know gather up two or three properties and then put six or eight units on them or you know somebody who might tear down some old building and put up a condo building those things all add something
0: mm-hmm. but
6: they don't add volume the way that you typically get out of suburban development where you know developer's got hundred 150 acres and he's gonna build a neighborhood with a lot of houses in it because our development industry is primarily geared to doing that. Remember the you talk- city of Ottawa was—they're you know, deep into this whole 15-minute intensification world—and in you know in their minds, well, you know, all kinds of a little six-unit apartment buildings are going to pop yeah. up all over the city. This is going to be great. But when I wrote about that and talked to people in the actual development industry, they said, "Well, hardly anybody does that because the economics of it yeah. don't make sense. It costs so much to acquire the land, tear down what's on there." And then when you go to government for all your approvals and fees that you're placing, okay, you have six units. You're gonna pay the same as somebody who's got 200 units because, oh, it's a project, you know? Gotta pay your fees. So it just, there isn't a real demand for it on the part of builders. And I think if there was a huge demand for it on the part of the public, we'd probably see it.
3: And as you said, I mean, that's not going to solve the problem. It's only one spoke in the wheel. You bring up something else a little earlier on, and you talked about electric vehicles. And obviously, I read the the paragraph out of your column there about how this is what cities were supposed to look like 20, 30 years ago. This is what we were aiming for. Is there going to be a clash of of titans here as we obviously intensify with electric vehicles? That's not going to curb urban sprawl, as they call it. That's only going to, and again, I don't understand why you just can't build smart communities with some big homes, small homes, semis, uh, townhouses, low-rise development all in one area and have a beautiful park through it. I mean, many neighborhoods in Ontario are already doing that. But how is the EV, you can, we we see it all around. We see it here in Halton, in Hamilton, uh, in in other areas. Um, That being said, how is the EV discussion going to change this?
6: Oh, I think it's important in a number of ways, but if you're... A person who doesn't like cars, and there's lots of people who are in that category, the sort of rational complaint is, well, you don't put the emissions, right? The emissions. So once you take emissions out of the picture, as we're gradually doing, Mm -hmm. then, well, okay, well, what is the complaint? Well, you know, cars. (laughs) Okay, but, you know, the car is the greatest personal mobility device that we've ever had. Yeah. Personally, I don't want my mobility to be controlled by somebody who works at City Hall who says, okay, we're going to run transit uh, in these locations at these times to these destinations. So try to make your life marry up with that as opposed to I'm going to go and get my car and I'm going to go to the places I need to go. That's how most people live their lives. It's great if you live in a neighborhood where you don't have to do that. We haven't built those kind of neighborhoods for a very long time. So, you know, again, I think it's reality, but we'll still see opposition to cars, even when there isn't a single gas-powered vehicle on the road. Because this scene is wrong by some people. You should walk, you should ride your bike those are the good ways to get
3: around well you know when most of it i don't know about you but i've never been able to live really close to where i work i've you know my job has dictated where i've been where i've had to go not where i want to go that's just the realities of life unfortunately randall we're right out of time great topic we'll chat again randall denley in the national post and ottawa citizen ontario ditching uh, ditching density requirements will get more housing built thank you randall this
0: is Scott Thompson.
4: If I'm understanding you correctly there is nothing that is ever kept from the prime minister.
5: Hamilton's news
0: today's talk. 900 CXM1. All
3: right, um, waiting uh- <laughs> Yeah, It is an hour and a half of your life that perhaps you'll never get back, but i uh, been watching Katie Telford testify in front of committee today in regard to Chinese uh, Communist Party interference in elections in Canada two times, and interesting watching it because no matter what question was asked, uh, I can't get into what he was briefed on or when, but then... Ending off with the clip that we just played, nothing is ever kept from the prime minister. There is is nothing that is
4: ever kept from the prime minister. There is nothing that (laughs) is ever kept from (laughs) the prime minister
3: so um with that uh, i can't get into what he was briefed on but nothing is kept from him uh, from him it's been well documented uh for a few years as through whether it's through media or CSIS or or globe and mail what have you that that these concerns have been raised so from that are we to assume although we're not getting the exact times and days Yeah, he knew about it. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Charles, hope you're doing well this Friday.
7: It's good to speak with
3: you, Scott. It is a beautiful Friday. So what are your thoughts on what we saw this afternoon?
7: Well, you know, we wanted to find out what the Prime Minister knew, when he knew it, and uh, what he did about it. And if nothing, why not? And, you know, we didn't get any further on that one. You know, Ms. Telford wouldn't comment on the the documents, except to make one comment on one of the documents that that the document that said that Beijing had given money to 11 federal election candidates and numerous Beijing operatives uh, who worked as campaign staffers in 2019 is not accurate. So, you know, she won't tell you anything about documents, but she's prepared to tell you that that one is not accurate. And, uh, you know, she wasn't sure that she should appear before the committee, but she said, I want Parliament to work. And that's why I came. But I mean, if this is Parliament working over two and a half hours of getting a big nothing burger out of her, I don't think it's working very well. And she gave the impression that she appeared willingly. But, you know, Parliament was going to was going to compel her to testify. So it wasn't like she was doing it out of the goodness of her heart. But, you know, it still leaves open all the questions about why we haven't done anything about chinese election interference despite having known about it for a long time you know no chinese diplomats expelled none of their agents involved in in campaign financing fraud brought to account before a court of law you know we're still we're still nowhere in trying to figure out exactly why things have not been resolved and why the government is so reluctant to give us any kind of detail about what they knew, when they knew it, and why they didn't act on it
3: is—you know—I can certainly see Charles the need to know that. But the fact that nothing that comes to her attention doesn't get to him, or the prime minister's office doesn't get to him, and clearly there's been documentation that that information has been provided. Uh, the only thing really we don't know is when he knew about it. But is—is is it naive to say, if you connect the dots, he knew about it?
7: Well, I mean, I think that uh, it's most likely he knew about it. She's certainly making a big point about how the prime minister absolutely reads everything that comes across his desk. Right. I don't know how she knows that. But, uh, you know, assuming that he does and assuming that, that uh, this would have been highlighted to him, including the concerns about Michael Chan um, as, you know, the campaign director for Mary Ying and about uh, Handong, should have surely have been brought to his attention. And if they weren't brought to his attention, then there's something seriously wrong in our intelligence reporting structure. And that would be worthy of uh, bringing a bit of transparency on. But let's assume that the Prime Minister was alerted to very, very serious allegations. Um, You know, it's the, the issue is really, why did he just let it slide? Is it because there are You know, important people at the senior levels of government who are receiving benefits from the Chinese state who Mm -hmm. want to suppress um, this kind of information or any action to be taken against Chinese malign activities in our country.
3: Uh, many are saying no minds have been changed here, but that being said, still the majority of Canadians want a public inquiry. So this has, has this done anybody any good? I mean, we're still in the same place. Are we not? Where does this advance the discussion? Does it advance the, the, the discussion of David Johnston and a public inquiry?
7: Well, I mean, if a public inquiry would, would have the same result as the, um, um, intervention mm. with, uh, Katie Telford, then, you know, we're not going to get very far along. I think, um, Certainly the existing mechanisms, the NSCOP and and the other government institutions that all go through the prime minister's office before they're made public are not effective. Um, you know, the, the appointment of David Johnston may have been a good appointment, but it was certainly a bad idea for Mr. Johnston to accept the appointment, given that he's on the record as being a close friend of the Trudeau family was on the uh, Trudeau Foundation that's been revealed to have had some very uh, murky dealings with large amounts of Chinese money and the fact that he um, has a lot of extensive dealings with China, including through his family. Um, So, you know, I'm not entirely confident that Mr. Johnson can overcome the at least perception of conflict of interest to give us anything that Canadians will trust. So what we really need is... Uh, you know, a person, an exemplary person without uh, close association with any particular political party who does not have um, any kind of reason to to be compromised by by Chinese influence. And we need that person to, you know, have access to absolutely everything. How you get the government to do that is another question. And then to provide us with a report with as much of the information being made public and transparent as possible, you know, beyond details mm. that might uh, compromise our intelligence gathering techniques or or compromise information. I mean, let's bear in mind, you know, the Globe and Mail um, documents have written on them that they've already been shared with the Five Eyes uh, Intelligence exactly. um, yeah. Consortium and other intelligence agencies. So our allies, a large number of them, a large number of people abroad, know exactly what's going on and also know that our government has not done anything about it. So, you know, we, we have a major crisis, not just domestically, but internationally as a result of the government's response to these revelations in the globe and by global news.
3: Charles Burton with a Senior Fellow Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald Laurier Institute in regard to Katie Telford, the Chief of Staff of the Prime Minister's testimony today. As always, Charles, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend.
7: Good to speak with you. I dare say we'll be talking about this a lot more.
3: I think so, Charles. Book is pencil. Pencil is in for next week. Katie Telford, uh, chief of staff of the prime minister, testifying this afternoon at committee in regard to uh, interference in elections from the Chinese Communist Party, and when and how and and who knew. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you, Ian. So, Duff, obviously, I'm I'm dying to get your impression here, but first off, obviously, she kept repeating, I can't get into what the prime minister was briefed on or when. That was repeated several times. We understand that, security, what have you. But then went on to say, nothing is ever kept from the prime minister. What can we, what sort of conclusion can we draw from that? Is it naive for us to think, well, we may not know the exact day that he found out, but he knew over the last two elections that this was going on? Is that accurate? She
8: should have been able to answer the question as to
3: when he
8: uh, received certain reports. And she was asked several times and just wouldn't answer that. So, um, there's nothing wrong with her, nothing to do with national security for her to say when he knew and uh, what he did about it. So it's just, uh, it's not acceptable. And the other big thing is both Katie Telford and Prime Minister Trudeau's national security intelligence advisor say, oh, we can't talk about reports that have been in the media reports that we've received from the spy agencies. However, we can tell you that the reports by global news reporter Sam Cooper (laughs) are false.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
8: Well, then you're talking about it. So if you can't talk about it, you can't talk about it. You can't have it both ways. You can't just say, Oh, I can say they're false, but I can't say anything else. They're just playing, trying to play the game on both sides. And, Sorry, uh, that's like being on the horns of a dilemma. You're going to get gored by one horn or the other. And they're gored by the fact that they're just covering things up. I'm sorry. It's just, they're just covering things up.
3: Uh, does this change anything for anybody? Um, you know, I guess if you're on one team, you think one way. If you're on the other team, you think the other way. But there's still the majority of, of Canadians, both uh, left and right, want a public inquiry. Does this change anything?
8: Her testimony just shows the need for a public inquiry because she is not answering questions that are answerable, such as when did the prime minister become informed of any information, even if she's saying that the reports by Sam Cooper are false, then what reports were received about interference in the 2019 election? When were they received and what did the prime minister do about that? And If she's not going to answer that question, well, that's a key question. Because if the reports were about interference that favored the Liberals in any way, or in other words, went against any other opposition party, either one, then how the prime minister acted is very important. Because if the interference helped the Liberals, and he didn't do anything about it like report it to the commissioner of can elections who is the one who reports who investigates violations of the elections act uh, then he acted in a partisan way
3: to help his party would the prime minister have would the prime minister have the last say on this stuff like if, uh, i'm guessing there's more than one person that knew this information is is it him that makes this call or is there other people that would say hey you know what like we got we got to rethink this
8: um, if there was interference then, and it violated the Canada Elections Act, then anyone who knew it should have been filing the information with the Commissioner of Canada elections because that's the person who enforces the Elections Act. A lot of people think it's the Chief Electoral Officer in Elections Canada. No, the Chief Electoral officer is a frontline person, and everyone who works on the election are frontline people. But the person who actually does investigations and can prosecute people for violating the Canada Elections Act is the Commissioner of Canada Elections. So if CSIS had good information, given the Commissioner of Canada Elections was part of the whole security protocol to to prevent foreign interference, then any information they had on any interference that, that uh, raised the uh, likely probability that the Canada Elections Act had been violated should have been passed on to the Commissioner of Canada Elections we don't know whether it was. That's why Democracy Watch filed a complaint with the Commissioner of Can Elections based on the media reports of interference, because we think that information in the media reports is gives her reason hmm. to fully investigate, which means also asking thesis, do you have information to back up these media reports and give it to me? Um, because I have the clearance and the authority to be investigating.
3: So what what happens now, Duff? What's next? We've got about 30 seconds left. What, where does this go now?
8: Well, the commissioner is, as she's reviewing material in terms of investigating, David Johnson, the prime minister's friend, should resign right away and say a public inquiry is needed. He just can't be continuing in that position because he's the prime minister's friend. Uh, and hopefully that's what happens. Otherwise, just more delay, more people coming before committee who are going to fudge things and cover it up. And David Johnson reporting at the end of May about his friend, Prime Minister Trudeau, and what he did and what should be done now, which is all unacceptable. We need an inquiry. Or Duff Conacher. A, 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 or we need a committee doing the inquiry, which they can, and they can get full security
3: clearance to do it. All right, Duff Coniger with this co-founder of Democracy Watch uh, after Katie Telford's testimony today at committee. Uh, Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: You may have seen some of the coverage of uh, the protests and such that are going on uh, in and around parts of France in regard to their retirement age. Uh, Current government trying to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Yes, you heard me correctly, 62 to 64, and it's creating a lot of havoc. To talk more about all this, Tony Keller is with us, editorial page editor for the Globe and Mail uh, in Toronto, and the current column is, France is having a pension crisis, why isn't Canada? And Tony is with us now. Tony, thanks for the time, I hope you're doing well.
9: I'm great, good to to be here. (laughs)
3: Let me ask this question, Tony, before we get to your piece right off the bat. Could Canada afford to let us retire at 62?
9: We could afford just about anything if we were willing to pay for it. So, yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, and in fact, lots of people do retire at sixty-two or sixty yep. or even fifty-five. But uh, you better you better save a lot of money, uh, pay pay very high premiums, etc., etc., to be able to do that.
3: So why is France having this issue now? Uh, is this just too rich a a, a plan for them? Uh, and obviously, people are living a lot longer than they used to when a lot of these were drawn up. Why is, why is this causing so much conflict in France?
9: Yeah, you just put your finger on one part of it, which is people do live a lot longer than they did when these pension schemes were dreamed up in the 1950s and 1960s. And at the same time, uh, everyone's having been having fewer children since the 1960s. So you put those two together, you've essentially got uh, more and more people of retirement age and fewer and fewer people of working age. And if you set up a pension plan, which is the way the French pension plan is set up, where the people who are working today pay the pensions of the people who are retired today, that is putting a greater and greater burden on the workers to pay a larger and larger number of retirees and it becomes more and more expensive and, and, and more and more difficult to sustain that, especially because France has a really generous pension scheme with very big pensions and very early retirement ages. We
3: remember that Canada had some difficulties in the 1990s with this, and it was faced, and in, in, you know, pensions uh, were, uh, uh, contributions were increased and such. Why not just do that in France? Hey, if you want to keep it at 62, no problem, but you got to pay more, just like you alluded to.
9: Yeah, that would be a, a one possible solution. I think, you know, the, the politics in every country are very difficult about this. People people want what they want. They sort of feel entitled to their entitlements. And if you ask them to either take less or pay more, they say, Why why are you doing this to me? And sometimes it's you know, it's just it's arithmetic that's doing it. It's it's not it's not the politicians. In Canada, we actually made some pretty sensible decisions in the nineteen nineties. We said we would increase Um, uh, Canada Pension Plan contributions. You may have noticed over the last 20 years, your contributions have basically doubled. But what that's done is it's made our, our, our Canada Pension Plan very, very solvent. And now some of the money that you're paying in today will pay your pension tomorrow. It's being saved. Canada Pension Plan Investment Board manages more than 500 billion dollars in savings, and that money is there so that as the, the number of retirees grows, we've got savings to pay them instead of having retirees paid entirely by people who are currently working. The French have, are not moving, trying to move to that system, and um, so their other alternatives are, as he said, either considerably increase rates on people who are working. Or raise the retirement age, or some combinations of, of those.
3: So they need systematic change here. Um, it seems like they've just been punting this down the road, uh, as you can see why you know how governments do. Uh, but do they need change to the system itself, and how they invest this money, how they distribute this money?
9: Yeah, that would be one. One of the options would be to move to a system kind of like Canada's, which is where you try to have you try to build up some savings for the time that you're retired. Another thing, possibility is what they're doing, which is trying to increase the retirement age. Other possibilities would be lower benefits, and a fourth possibility, which is uh, what some countries end up doing, is they just say, well, in addition to having high pension contributions, we're also going to use your regular taxes to partly fund uh, pensions. So. One way or the other, you either have to put more money into the system or you have to take less money out of the system or you have to figure out some kind of way to have increased contributions, save them, and then build up a, build up the, the, the savings so that you can pay pensions in the future. But yeah, at the, the end of the day, it's all just arithmetic and there's sort of no way to magically create more money.
3: Um, many of us on this side of the pond will say well gee whiz that's pretty generous and not feel too sorry for them yet that being said if you've got plans in place and now those are being changed i can understand why people would be upset is there any way for them to grandfather this in and get through it and stop the protests but but at least alleviate or try to, to solve the problem
9: yeah, it seems like a lot of what's driving the protest, a lot of the people who are driving the protest in France are actually quite young. There seem to be a lot of people in their 20s and 30s on the streets, so they're not people who are about to retire. This is not a case of saying to someone who's who's 62, yeah. you you have to immediately keep working two years. They are trying to stretch it out over a few years. But understandably, a lot of the people who are upset about it are, are, are younger people who are just thinking, well, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now when I retire – um, is you know is my pension going to be there? Are they going to make me retire later? What other uh, costs are they going to impose on me? And the truth is, if you're worried about that in Canada, um, you shouldn't be. The Canada pension plan is going to be there. If you're in your 20s today or your 30s or your 40s, the Canada pension plan is going to be there 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. It does not have uh, a problem. It's, it's actually quite well run. It's got the savings. The actuaries have looked at it. It's in good shape. Uh, we're in we're in much better condition than France. It's it's a re- kind of remarkable good news story that nobody talks about because it's good news. And there's
3: lots of examples, whether it's here or in Europe, of this happening. So France has just got to look to its neighbors or other people who are doing it the right way. I think that's
9: that's actually a good point because yeah, there are other countries that have somewhat higher retirement ages. There are countries like Canada that have said. Well, we've got a pretty flexible retirement age. Like in Canada, you can take Canada Pension Plan as early as 60, or you yeah. can take it as late as 70. If you take it early, you get a lot less. If you take it later, you get a lot more. So we're trying mm-hmm. to incentivize you uh, to take it later and to keep and to keep paying in. And then at the same time, yeah, we've built up this, this pool of savings so we're not we're not worried that we're going to uh, end up having to cut your benefits or or raise everybody's contributions suddenly to, to in, a, in a scramble to try to keep the thing solved. Should France
3: have had these discussions a while ago? Yes. Correct. Yeah. Correct yeah. question,
9: correct answer. <laughs>
3: there you go. All right, Tony Keller with us, editorial page editor for the Globe and Mail out of Toronto. And uh, the situation that is happening in France, don't worry, we're safe here. Tony, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Take it easy, great to talk to you.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve
5: into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: The One thing about the Pentagon leaks is it's sort of taken the uh, former President Donald Trump away from the uh, headlines, at least, you know, two or three down. Uh, and, and we found out, uh, obviously, information leaking out of the Pentagon. And now a leaker was arrested. A person was arrested arrested uh, earlier uh, yesterday and on his parents' deck, uh, a 21-year-old, I believe. Let's bring in Reggie Chikini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So what can you tell us about the person who has been apprehended here? Uh, is it just a young kid
1: who went rogue? What can you tell us? So this is a uh, this is a member of the U.S. military. He is a 21-year-old. Uh, from the Air National Guard. He worked directly with uh, much of the classified information that was uh, released and and kind of rewritten and posted publicly. Uh, The kind of broader part of that that people are focusing in on is, yes, he was 21 years old and was kind of close to a lot of the sensitive information. What we understand now is that he was not a part of the kind of group within the military that would be processing and packaging up this sensitive material for other members of the military, senior leaders of the military. He was more linked to the maintenance of the secure servers, uh, but in that sense still had access to the sensitive material. So it is raising questions here about why so many people may have an ability to access this information, but it wasn't just some 21 year old from, you know, someone's basement right. accessing the information. This is somebody who had actual access to it.
3: So obviously now the question is uh, with procedure, should this this person at this level have had that sort of access?
1: Yes, uh, this the, the question has been raised. Should somebody, you know, be able to access the material? But at the same time, the question is, well, how can somebody keep a server secure if they don't have access to that information? And then the third part of that is, well, why do we have people of a certain age? Why are these 21-year-olds, why are these people that are still very freshmen in the military being put into these positions where this could happen? Now, you know that detracts from the matter that this could be uh, somebody of any age who puts this information out there, but Mm -hmm. it is raising questions. And the Biden administration is facing some serious pushback now from Republicans about the fact that so much sensitive material has been in the hands of so many different people now – what are the broader implications going to be? So what exactly did he do, Reggie? So what we understand, at least from this kind of obscure group that he was a part of, or at least led in this social platform on on the site Discord, uh, he had access to this information and he didn't want to print it at least in the office, or send it from within the office, because that's traceable. Uh, so we understand from his friends and from reporting in some of the American newspapers uh, that he would take information home with him. He would take pictures of the documents, or he would rewrite the documents. He would post them online, and according to the the social circle that he kept of a couple of dozen people, this was simply to keep people in the loop. This is a group of people who felt that trust uh, was being breached here by the government by keeping things from the public, but at the same time time, it doesn't appear that this was, uh, you know, that this was intended to go as far as it did or be spread as wide. But, you know, obviously putting something on the Internet, it's really hard to control where that is going to go. But again, this speaks to the much larger issue of what is the fallout going to be from what this one person did? And are there others who may be involved?
3: So uh, getting back to what you were saying, Reggie, what what was his motive here? Was did he think he was doing good here or
1: or evil? Well, I mean, look. There's, there's, there's no motive, at least as of yet. Yeah, prosecutors haven't assigned um, a motive to this, you know, alleged security breach. Um, and you know, even those who were trying to figure it out, uh, they say that the, the behavior just, you know, is is a little bit out there, and and they're not able to kind of pinpoint precisely what was going on. Again, according to the people who were in this group on 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 Discord, um, this was simply to try and keep people in the loop but it does it does raise you know kind of that question of according to authorities he did search the word leak on his government computer within days of this being reported publicly so did he understand Hmm. that this was becoming a problem that's a part of the investigation now
3: wow it's um it's hard to believe that uh this could have happened just because someone wasn't educated enough or wasn't smart enough to realize that what they were doing was very wrong
1: And and, I mean, and when we talk about the broad implications of something that could be considered wrong, um, I mean, there are many of them. Look, this this has kind of drawn the matter of the ukraine war into uh an alleged or this this leak investigation now showing how far the u.s was able to get into russian intelligence questioning whether or not ukraine would be able to actually maintain its posture and position as it pushes back on ukraine i was just with uh, deputy prime minister Christian freeland uh, a couple of hours ago uh, and she dismissed some of the kind of thought process that is alleged in these leaks to say, look, no, Ukraine has the backing of uh, of the world and it will continue to move forward. So this goes far beyond just the borders of the United States. There is a much broader global uh, concern here for what could be now in the hands of the wrong people.
3: Uh, any idea what kind of penalty this person is going to be facing for this?
1: Well, I mean, look, he, he's been charged uh, with a number of charges from the Justice Department. Uh, and, and, you know, from what I understand, it is about 10 years per charge, and that could be per document. We don't know if things would be concurrent mm. or if they would be, um, you know, uh, running consecutively. Uh, we also don't know if this is going to move into military court. This is all kind of moving very quickly since this was uncovered yesterday. So we know that this is in the hands of the Justice Department, whether or not it remains a civilian matter, that's something that the courts are going to have to decide.
3: Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington
1: correspondent for Global News.
3: Pentagon leaks and arrest has been made. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Joining us now to talk about Katie Telford, Chief of Staff for the Prime Minister, testifying today at committee in regard to interference in elections from the Chinese Communist Party. Tim Powers with us now, Chairman Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. And with us now, Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're enjoying the sunshine. Scott, I was
10: just outside and I'm inside right now just for seven minutes to talk to you about (laughs) thrilling testimony today.
3: Well, that is fabulous because it gets you out of the sun during this hot period of the day. So I think I'm only helping your health.
10: I'm a ginger guy. I can't get a sunburn.
3: So let me ask you this because I've been trying to digest this uh, all afternoon. Um, Over and over, we kept hearing from Katie Telford, and this was, I guess, expected. I can't talk anything about what the prime minister was briefed on or when. I get that. But then followed up and said, in the clip we just heard the little abbreviation of, nothing is ever kept from him by... By me so that being said you follow the timelines when everybody knew what and all of this started to break whether it ceases whether it's the media whoever uh is it safe to say that although we don't know the exact time when he knew about this when those other security people or whoever would have known about this is it naive to think that
10: i think he knew about something but i guess we don't know what the this is right i was what and I, and
3: I take okay the, l- let me let it, let me interrupt right there because i'm i i, I do not get i just want to uh, i want to get my point out and that is um we don't know what we don't know whatever we don't know this that or whatever but at the end of the day should he not have if he didn't
0: I, uh.
10: Yeah, I mean, effectively, yes. If there was something there, I, I well, again, let me just say this, and I think this is yeah. probably the most reliable thing that came out of this. I don't, I'm not inferring that Katie Telford wasn't telling the truth. I mean, she was using uh, the security shield, and by that I mean the fact that you uh, uh, that she uh, was saying that you know so much of this information was under the top the very security act, she couldn't speak about them, but what i what i'm meaning is the, the thing that i got out of this is the fact and i think she wants us to hang our our thoughts on this that the um, uh you get a lot of intelligence she said some of it's right other bits of it are proven wrong and it comes in bits and pieces and i'm paraphrasing here it's hard to interpret so that was interesting for me because that looks like that's what their defense is going to be if we ever get to a place scott where you know on this date at this time, the prime minister was briefed, and uh, they can say, "Well, yeah, he may have been briefed, but you know, we didn't believe it to be reliable intelligence based on X, Y, and Z." It, it just gets more complicated, I think. Which I don't know if that helps or hurts them. Um, but today was not overly revelatory, as I said to you last week, from my perspective
3: who knows what to believe, who can we believe, who knows what is right, what is wrong. Is that not all the more reason to assume that it could be bad and cover your arse? (laughs) Good Newfoundland use of arse, by the way, Scott. There you Um, go. It it could be. Yeah,
10: it could be. It's just, I mean, I always find with these intelligent stuff, the more the murkier they make it, the more conspiratorial we could become, and maybe with reason, yeah. but they don't help themselves. And I think Kelford did get at that a little bit, like because there's no clear communication here. Is that because they're hiding something? Is that because there are actually national security constraints? Um, you know what? What is it? So when it's not clear, um, the predisposition is to believe that something isn't right. So from a political perspective. That's a huge problem for the liberals. Now, Telfer didn't add to their problems today. Um, it's a mystery to me, Scott, enduring mystery, because, as I said, to you, she's good in these circumstances. They caused themselves so much damage by waiting for months to put her up there. Had she been up two months ago saying what she said today? Is this thing is damaging for them or not? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, uh, it's, d- a, it's a goal, their own goal, as you call it in soccer, by just dragging this out and making themselves appear even more guilty, whether they actually
3: are or not Uh, Listening to Katie Telford basically say the same thing that the Prime Minister uh, did, is that going to be enough for Canadians? And again, after what I've seen today, and as you alluded to, due to the lack of transparency here, I've yet to see or hear any reason to believe what they say, because there's so much more mounting evidence of the opposite. And obviously, Canadians are seeing that.
10: Well, what they're seeing, and I think just picking up on your point, which I agree with, the most compelling narrative is the one being presented by Globe and Mail and or Global Television who, through the sources that they have, and there's no reason to doubt these sources, we have been given no reason whatsoever to doubt these sources, um, are putting together a picture of a government asleep at the wheel. So, if you accept that that's the clearest narrative, the government didn't do anything today to uh, make you believe that that they weren't asleep at the wheel. They just said they can't tell you uh, if they were driving or not driving or holding the wheel. If you keep that metaphor
3: going. So does this just throw another log on the fire? What do we get out of this? What what next? What now?
10: Well, I think what's I think I said this to you yesterday. What I'm going to be really interested in is what does the Goldman Mail have next week? Because you know the security establishment were watching this this week, and the people who have likely been providing information to to the globe, how do they react? Do they now come forward with something that just spins this in a, in a direction that, uh, uh, that, that is, continues to be not helpful for the Liberals? Did they, did they expect that Telford might have said something different today? And when she didn't, they are now going to move forward and say, well... Chief of staff may have said this, but here's a document that shows that. That's what I'm looking for. And is there any movement on the David Johnson front? You and I talked about this yesterday, and I was just on a panel elsewhere with Tom Mulcair. Tom continues to make the point that David Johnson should, you know, should step down. I don't think David Johnson is going to do that. Tom said that as much himself. But is there some, you know, some other dramatic piece that comes from outside the government that impacts where this story goes next week?
3: Yeah, Key, where it goes next week. Tim Powers with his chairman, Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Have yourself a great weekend. You too, buddy. Bye. We've talked about artificial intelligence a lot on the show of late, specifically Chat GPT. Uh, I've talked about it with my kids quite a bit, one in university, one in high school. And I got to tell you this quick story. Um, My kid was, uh, my boy was talking about it. We're sitting at the kitchen table. He's got his laptop open. He's doing his homework, whatever. And we started talking about Chat GPT. And he goes, Have you seen it, Dad? I said, No, really, I haven't. And what do you want to? Sure. So he gives me a little uh, lesson tutorial on the sort of thing. And for fun, I said, Put in my name and see what you get. And of course, you know, I mean, I'm not famous. I'm, you know, there's not a lot written about me on the internet other than our webpage for work and all that sort of stuff. So he does it a couple of times because it comes up blank a a few times. So he actually had to write it in the form of a question. And so it was something like, um, what can you tell me about Hamilton today with Scott Thompson? And then a whole page comes up. Very well written. And my my kid was quite impressed uh, because it went on to say how uh, Scott Thompson... Uh, works at 900 CHML, uh, and he's one of the uh, you know, well-known personalities, radio personalities in Canada. It actually blew up my head quite a bit, and I'm, you know, and the kid was impressed and everything. And then he went on to uh, read, um, you know, and he, he he does noon to three at CHM, and of course i don't do noon to three anymore i do three till six so i said well that that's a mistake and then he keeps reading on and uh scott thompson is also a famous comedian uh, from the kids in the hall and then does a little thing on that then it also uh does a thing about hamilton today and how hamilton today is a great broadway musical so, uh, with a page and one little question into the chat GPT, I think I gave my kid one of the greatest lessons in what to be aware of if you ever use these devices. In other words, I got like a page, maybe three quarters of a page on the show and myself, and out of the three main points they mentioned, only one of them was accurate and two were fake. They were different Scott Thompson. Well, one was a different Scott Thompson, uh, that being the guy from the kids in the hall, the comedian. The other one, uh, relating the show to a the Hamilton musical on Broadway, so one third of it was accurate. So we're we're very much confused and 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 wondering what this leads for the, where this leads in the future. Uh, we've literally heard this can be used in any industry, virtually in any situation, and and it's amazing but it's like the old story garbage in garbage out how will this affect our life moving forward specifically around journalism and what we're seeing now with the media let's bring in jeffrey dvork and senior fellow at massey college former director of journalism at the university of toronto scarborough author of trusting the news in a digital a digital age he's with us now jeff thanks for the time i hope you're well
11: i'm well thank you scott for inviting me
3: how concerned are you about ai and journalism in general
11: well, I don't think we should panic too soon <laughs> or too often, but I think there's something serious going on right now. And a number of businesses, and especially investors, are pouring millions and millions and millions of dollars into research, into AI, and where it could lead and how it could be made profitable At every level, not just in journalism, but in universities and in entertainment. And it's just, uh, it's astonishing. And I'm seeing, I just in preparation for our chat today, (laughs) ChatGPT, I I started doing a little research myself. And in the Financial Times of London, a, a writer called Ian Hogarth talked about how there are now, we're facing a kind of catastrophic risk scenario. On the one hand, we are seeing people um, in various media organizations and in academia saying that, oh, all this is positive for humanity, but we'll always have control, and we must not, uh, we must not, we must distinguish, rather, between the performance of artificial intelligence and competence. And as you just mentioned, there were a number of, misinformation mm-hmm. about when, we, when they search for your name. And I think that that's going to be very interesting. An article in The Guardian today, because the Brits are really fascinated by this, um, an article in The Guardian today said that there are a number of articles appearing on the internet allegedly being written by Guardian reporters, which are complete fabrications hmm. from chat GPT people who have decided, well, let's do a story in the Guardian manner and then post it. And so we're seeing a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And part of the problem here, I think, is in the same way that media organizations raced to get a hold of digital culture and digital technology, because Mm. they saw this as a way of Making more money and doing what they do in a more cost effective way. And so there have been a number of, there have been a number of people who have said, let's slow down for six months. And a petition was drawn up, including Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak from, from Google, Gary Marcus put out a petition, said, let's slow down for six months and figure this out. And it turned out that some of the signatures on that petition were fake.
3: Oh so, man! you,
11: you know, <laughs> who can, who can you trust is, yeah. is still the right question. And I think that one of the things that uh, we're seeing now in different parts of the world in Kuwait, the evening news or the television news service in Kuwait has a, uh, a, a woman who's not real, who's delivering the news 24 uh, sevens and, and doing it very competently, whether it's Uh, can be validated or not is another question, but she's not real. She, she's, she just is on the air doing the news. And she started off by saying, please tell us what kind of information you'd like us to provide and we will provide it. Well, I think this, this, the implications of that sort of thing, because she never takes a holiday. She's always on the air. She looks terrific. And, and uh, people are watching her or watching it. I so think this, we're, is chat, we're at, this is we're chat. this is chat a point now where it's getting really, really serious. So that's sort of chat GPT, but a real uh, but an image. And, that's and right. a character. But people people are saying, well, I don't care where it comes from. as long as I'm getting my news uh, whenever I want it and it's being done in a way that is pleasing to the eye and ear. I think you and I should start uh, brushing off our resumes right now. (laughs) So, uh, at the
3: end of the day, and we remember whether it was Encyclopedia Britannica, whether it was buying Cole's notes, whether oh the internet, oh my goodness, what's it going to do to us? Is this just another tool? Research is research. Plagiarism is plagiarism.
11: Right, but the what I maybe I'm just getting cynical in my old age, or maybe in my. I was always the cynical, but mm-hmm. it seems to me that media organizations are always going to be looking for ways in which they can do more of what they are doing now, but do it more cheaply. Yeah. And that was the promise of digital, that somehow uh, we were going to be able, whether it was at uh, CBC or at the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star or wherever, we were going to be able to do more with less and we were going to be able to do it more cheaply. And I think that this is now starting to loom a little a little too close to reality for a lot of people. I guess the question is, what does the public say? What does the public think about this? And one of the things that The Guardian reporter said is that the only way to hold this down is for governments to get more involved in AI and ChatGPT and to figure out a way that it can be managed and maybe even... Uh, controlled in a governmental way. And that makes everybody very nervous, of course, as as it should. But at the same time, I'm not sure I trust the uh, the the clear hand of capitalism to provide the kind of information and education that uh, that serves us as a democracy jeffrey Vorkin with us, senior fellow massey college former director of journalism
3: university of toronto scarborough with us talking about ai and its invasion jeff as always thanks for the time have a great weekend you too cheers
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley with
3: us now, host of The Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, hope you are doing well. I could not be doing better, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You know, I uh, it was I was talking to Graham Mackay the other day, cartoonist for the yes. Spec. First time I've ever had him on the radio. Really? And I, yeah, which is bizarre because I'm a huge fan of his, and uh, you know, I, th- I think he's one of the best in the country. By you know, and uh, I've been from province to province, so I've seen a few of them. And uh, and we were talking about Mad Magazine and uh, and one of the illustrators dying, but and uh, passing away at like 102. Yeah. But anyway, fascinating guy and uh, boy. We're we're lucky to have him here, that's for sure. On that note, we're lucky to have you too, Mr. Radley. Wow. And your thoughts on, uh, did you see any of the gripping TV today of uh, the Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, testifying? Uh, she said and over and over again, I can't get into what the Prime Minister was briefed on or when. However, she also said nothing is ever kept from the Prime Minister. Are we to assume by that...
2: They knew about this. We're just not getting the fine details. So the answer to your first question is um, I have a friend who is uh, battling ALS, and I decided that my day would be better spent today sitting outside chatting with him on his device that he can use with his eyes to talk. Oh, my. And he is a very close friend, and it's amazing the technology. I mean, we were I was thinking as I was leaving his place. I'm going to get back to your answer, but – As I was leaving his place, what would have happened, and it's not that long ago, before this kind of technology when your ability to speak goes away and you now have, because he can't move his arms either, literally Mm. no way to communicate, even though what's going on inside is still going on inside. It's Mm. like the technology, it's unbelievable. So I decided that spending time with him was far more useful than what I had predicted was (laughs) going to be what happened, which was that she was going to come in, and find some, you know, thing where she goes, well, I can't tell you this. I'm not allowed to speak to this. I can't. I mean, uh, is there is there a single person on planet Earth who really thought she was going to come in
3: and no, answer the no. questions? No.
2: There was There was never a chance that this was going to happen. And this, Scott, is the problem with what David Johnson is now going to be facing. He's got the exact same thing. The government is going to say, well, we can't answer because this is classified. And then what's he going to do? yeah exactly and, and, well that's the next, that's what a lot of the people i've been talking to today are
3: saying is to be interesting to see what david johnson does and if he backs out of this
2: um well i don't know if he's going to back out I, I mean whether he backs out just or pass not it, just pass it to a public inquiry and get it over with. that see so here's the tricky part because uh regardless one way or another today i think was the um and again i, I didn't watch the whole thing but i've caught enough of it since I've been driving and listening. And I I think what we're seeing today was the appetizer for a public inquiry or a raconteur or rapporteur, whatever the heck he is. Um, It's all going to be, well, this is classified. We can't talk about it. We can't help you out with this. I'm sorry. We are going to, when this whole thing is over, having spent surely millions of dollars chasing this, we will be right back where we started, with absolutely no answers. If, if I will, I will sit here and apologize and say I was wrong. If I'm wrong, months from now, but I will bet you that we will have moved not an inch from where we are today. Let me answer that.
3: Uh, I think you are possibly correct in that uh, the public will not know any more information, but the difference is if you have a public inquiry, as opposed to this fiasco we're watching here with this committee uh, where there's all kinds of partisan politics going on, the people are sworn to secrecy, they go in, we've got all the teams there, then they come out and they say, say yay or nay. Uh, I'm confident with that as a Canadian. I'll, I don't need to know the deep, dark secret, but I need to know that the there's equal representation from everybody in that room, and the liberals aren't running the show as they are now.
2: Okay, so you're okay if – see, the, the the only way we would ever get anywhere with this is to have a, an inquiry, but I think the only way to do it would be a private inquiry where this information could be said behind closed doors. Yeah. and But then – then, see, I don't think that that is going to resolve anything yeah. because then, How do
3: you know, they're not keeping the secret. From uh, us? Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, then yeah,
2: yeah. so then if the if the person who's in charge sides with the government, those who don't like the government are going to say, oh, it's a cover up. And if they don't side with the government and yeah. say that Trudeau is at fault, they're going to say, oh, he was a partisan. He was just out to get the government. So you can't move the needle on this one.
3: You know, uh, I think we got to be really careful that we don't fall into the trap that a lot of these extremists are trying to get us to fall into, is that, because I saw one politician come out and say, well, you know, what if we did this, and the answer wasn't to what some people uh, would like, then they're going to not believe the answer anyway, and that's BS, because the majority of Canadians, if a judge or a jury or whatever, our institution say something, will believe them, and that kind of garbage, like this politician said about, well, the the decision goes this way, then the other one's not going to do it, and that goes that way, the other one's going to do that just cloudies the water no we have trust in our institutions mostly let's build that trust instead of
2: cracking it down just to you know fulfill our own agenda can i make one other suggestion though that yep. where this thing more than likely will end up being decided is if any of the reporters who are covering this very closely find something else that becomes indisputable or if documents somehow end up in the public square that you can look and it's a document as opposed to a source because I know everyone says, well, you know, sources. Well, who are the sources? Well, you know what? Back in Watergate, we didn't know who the source was, but the source was okay. The source brought down the White House. So, But if there is a document or if there is something that would somehow end up in the public square, That is somewhere, inquiry or public hearing or whatever, that's where this thing probably ends up being decided. And short of that, as I say, I just, I have, Scott, I have zero faith that anybody is going to move off their position. Those who are supporters of the government are not moving. Those who hate the government are not moving. We're just going to scream at each other for the next number of months while millions of dollars are being spent chasing this.
3: Uh, again that's you know again you're you're coming to the conclusion that there isn't a solution here and i believe there is and that's the truth and we'll get to it i mean telling us that the prime minister uh you can't tell us when the prime minister found out about this or what he knew that is not going to disclose any deep dark secret i don't think the the public is any more convinced of this and whether we find the answer or not uh i don't think it bodes well for the for the government i i think that they've you know they didn't win anything and they've already been losing
2: so. yeah I agreed, but I, I just was on Twitter before I came into the studio here today, and very predictably, lots of people saying Katie Telfer held up her end and did you know, yeah. and she's a, a shining light, and other people saying Katie Telfer is covering up everything. There Scott, I, I I would love to believe your comment that the truth, basically the truth will set us free. We are in a post-truth era. Truth. It is your truth. Don't it is give my- up, Scotty. Don't give up. Hey, we are in the oprification of our society <laughs> where we have my truth and your truth and my truth is what I believe. And that's now not my opinion that we now call that my truth. Yeah. And so how do you budge someone off of my truth? Scott, to to be so hosts- negative.
3: Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. More on this coming up. As always, Scott, thanks for the time, and have a great weekend. See ya.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live, weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
2: Frank wrote in to say, come on, Scott. Unless your reverend lives next
3: door to you, you can say ass on the air. Hey, 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 hey.